welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And here uh, is a promise, as is so often restated to Israel, God is going to come, He's going to set things right. Facing exile, Isaiah told Israel, Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment... And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood, and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. Oh, they're going to see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Let's pray. Holy and righteous one of Israel, Father, you have uh, issued your decrees from long past, and they ring as true today as when they were first written. And uh, we know, we know that judgment uh, is coming. There is a day set, and uh, yet in your mercy, in your love, and in your compassion, you have offered a path of reconciliation, and uh, that is through your Son, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. And Father, as we uh, declare that gospel today in song and in word, we pray that your Holy Spirit is moving mighty and uh, convicting hearts of sin, uh, that all who hear uh, would look to Christ as Savior, and that He would be glorified until the day that He comes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we find our uh, place in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we're entering a section that I've just referred to as the sundry proverbs of Ecclesiastes. The term sundry means assorted or diverse. Proverb means wise adage or saying. And chapters 10 and 11 
are primarily going to offer assorted principles for wise living under the sun. So sundry proverbs supply assorted benchmarks, parameters, boundaries of wisdom under the sun. And if you're familiar with the sundry laws of of the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, they were provided to help God, uh, for God to help Israel, uh, the leaders of Israel specifically, to discern how to assign criminal penalties or, or order restitution for an offense, civil restitution. Sundry laws were, well, they were never design, uh, designed to provide Israel with an exhaustive resource and specificity on how to rule in every single case and every scenario. If, if Scripture were to attempt to do that, the Bible would be thicker than the law school at uh, Harvard Law Library. Folks, the, the reason that our legal, legal codes have become so complex is because of the lack of exercising fairness and wisdom in judgment. Uh, often courts fail to apply wisdom. And to prevent unjust judges from acting arbitrarily or capriciously, legal statutes have become increasingly exhaustive and, and complex in every manner, trying to ad- address every single possible case. Scripture doesn't function that way. It does not. It doesn't strive or even attempt to be exhaustive. Uh, Instead, God provides benchmarks or reference points in his law, these sundry laws, and then he kind of anticipates that the believer is going to be able to use some wisdom in order to uh, apply them, apply spiritual wisdom, and fill in the blanks. Be reasonable and assess every possible scenario and to render an appropriate decision. Just one example of applying the sundry laws. You've probably read at one time or another or heard that Deuteronomy 19 verse 5, it addresses a rather strange scenario. It says, When a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood, And his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree. And the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies. He may flee to a city of refuge and live. Now what are the odds? What are the odds? Why does scripture even allocate space to something such as this? You know, Christians can sometimes take criticism for these rather odd situations and scenarios in the Bible. But sundry laws were not given to entertain. Rather, they offer benchmarks that supply parameters to spiritual leaders to make a judgment, a legal rendering, a civil restoration perhaps. Uh, Judges would look at the law. They would observe the law of Israel And when there arises a freak occurrence, it may involve a criminal offense, uh, they could inquire into the word of God and decide, oh, where does this fall? Where does this fall? 
they, they might come to say, well, you know, this accident, it falls kind of somewhere in between an axe head flying off of a handle and, uh, you know, an owner of an ox leaving his gate open and allowing a, a neighbor's wife to be gorged to death. I say, there's some accidental part to this, and then there's some negligence as well. So they would inquire into God's holy law to assign an appropriate penalty. They were guidelines. They were sundry guidelines, various guidelines. And judges would use these laws as boundaries to assess and determine what is fair, what is just in any, any type of hypothetical scenario. King Solomon, he was the wisest at this. He had, uh, had wisdom, had asked for wisdom, as you likely know, to guide God's people. And it really showed. Uh, his discernment, it was so spectacularly in tune with God's perfect and righteous law that the visitors from, from neighboring nations, including, uh, including the Queen of Sheba, uh, they, they just marveled. They marveled at the wisdom with which he ruled. They glorified Yahweh, the God of Israel. For they saw wisdom in, in Israel like they found no place else. Uh, functionally and similarly to sundry laws, much of chapters 10 and 11, they, they supply these various proverbs uh, not to render legal decisions, but for us to live wisely. Solomon wants us to possess these principles because they are going to improve our experience under the sun. They are going to improve our experience living under the sun. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, uh, chapter 10 and verse 4, we read this. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. Point number one. This is wisdom right here. When someone who exercises authority over you gets angry at you, don't blow a gasket. Solomon is he's probably referring once again to the setting in the king's court, a royal court. Uh, but the overarching principle offered in verse 1, it could include a boss, it might include a parent or a teacher at a school, uh, a law enforcement officer. Any sphere of power that exercises a form of dominion over you, when their temper rises against you, you know, don't, don't hastily resign and storm out. There's no wisdom in that. You say, what, what I, I thought the, the, the NASB, the New American Standard, says, don't abandon your position. Doesn't that mean that you stand up for what's right? No. 
That's not what it means. The New King James Version translates verse 4, Do not leave your post. Don't abandon your post. Don't shirk your responsibility. That means don't throw up your hands and and quit your job impulsively and walk out in a huff. Don't drop out of college just because one professor has gotten on your case. That they've treated you unjustly. They docked your grade. You know, instead, maintain your composure. Preserve your composure and keep a level head. Folks, that, that is wisdom right there. Keep your composure. Don't let it get out of control. Um, the broad principle it would also include the wisdom principle. You know, don't insult a police officer for pulling you over. That, that is just about the dumbest thing, one of the dumbest things I think I've ever seen. You know, video everywhere today and body cams and other things. Um, folks, a police officer is an agent of government authority. Authority. Um, that's why they wear the uniform and the badge. Meaning they are not the authority. They represent, they're an agent of the authority. And uh, with cameras everywhere now, boy, you see people blowing their top on cops. Not a wise response. Not a wise response at all. Your career, your reputation being videoed, uh, your very freedom, your life are more important than winning an argument on the side of the road. Would you like to know what really actually works? Diffusing an anger, authority, composure. Composure. Quick illustration. Are you ready? Years ago, Rita got pulled over by a trooper for doing 96. The officer was a bit upset. Rita got pulled over. Um, her response. She said with the sincerest respect, Officer, I, I guess if that's what your radar says, uh, but I don't think I've ever driven that fast in my life. Uh, maybe my speedometer is off, but if, if that's what you say, maybe my speedometer is broken. And because she was so considerate, he conceded that with the hill he was coming off of, the, the radar in his car might have registered another car. He said, you know what? I might have made the mistake. He says, it's possible it might have been me. I think it was her. <laughs> but he gave her a warning. Gave her a warning because she was polite. Um, being upset as he was, what do, you, what do you think he would have done if she started insulting him? Well, she would have come home with a ticket for 96. Then I would have gotten a bit upset. Uh, she doesn't drive fast. But thankfully, composure allays. Composure alleviates great offenses. It truly does. Um, so what if he would have written her a ticket? 
So what? Take it to court if need be. Um, but do any of us really want to be arrested for disorderly conduct? Boy, I don't. I don't. How's that going to look with a potential employer of your next job when they do a background screening? No, folks, you can ruin your whole, that's just one scenario. You can ruin your whole life by responding impulsively out of anger. Solomon says, composure allays great offenses. Wait, don't bow up. Don't, don't give your unreasonable, angry boss a reason to fire you. Wait, wait, be patient. Choose a better time. Resign later on. Uh, don't let it, and this, this happens from time to time. Don't let an agitated teacher or professor in, in the colleges and university systems rob you of your degree or your diploma or your future and your dreams. You, folks, you don't have to win every time. We don't have to win every time. There's a theologian back in the day, uh, his name was Kenny Rogers. He said, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. There is a proper time to fold your cards and just bring peace. So verses 4 to 7 here framed before us give practical advice on how to manage your frustration with the foolishness of people who exercise influence over us. There are foolish people who exercise influence over us. Lesson number one, keep your composure. Keep your composure. Um, whether they are in the wrong or whether even if you are in the wrong, keep your composure. It allays great offenses. My folks, that, that wisdom there, that is pure gold for ministry. Is it not, Gerald? Pure gold. Well, there are times when you get frustrated and you want to respond. Uh, you might be warranted in doing so in ministry, but then you don't. And later on, you're like, I'm so glad I didn't. Keep your calm. In hindsight, you're almost always glad you didn't. Almost always. Wisdom says, you know, when Satan throws that bait out there, well, wanting to hook you, don't bite. Do not bite. Now, I'm, I'm also suggesting that, that there's never a time uh, to stand your ground. If you go ahead and stand your ground. Uh, there is a time to defend your position. But if you can, keep your calm. Keep your calm. It's usually better to diffuse the situation and respond another time, even when that influence over you is completely unjust in what they're doing. Um, delay for another day. That's the point Solomon makes next. There is not a question of whether you will be treated wrong. The only question is when and how are you going to be treated wrongly. We know, we know the whole world is just completely turned upside down. We're going to be treated wrong. And in verse 5, Solomon writes, There is an evil I have seen under the sun. Again, this is referring to authorities that are over us. 
and how they affect our life and our experience while living under the sun. Solomon sees this one as evil. It's an injustice. It's wrong. But what is the injustice? He says, like an error which goes forth from the ruler, folly is set in many exalted places. Wow. The Hebrew word there for error in verse 5, it refers to either or both an inadvertent mistake or something that is just done without proper consideration. Just a foolish, foolish move by someone who is in authority. And under the sun, folly. Boy, folly is appointed in many exalted places. That is positions of honor, positions of authority. It includes political appointments, other events that are frustrating to us. Even in our representative republic, as we see it. It's usually the day after election or something like that. You're just like, wow, wow. We're forced to endure it all the time. Folks, that is the fallen world. It's it's what it is. People are crazy. You ever heard of a term nepotism? The word nepotism, well, according to Wikipedia which is not all that reliable of a source, so don't go there. But according to them, this is what they say. Nepotism is a form of favoritism which is granted to relatives and friends in various fields, including business, politics, entertainment, sports, religion, and other activities. In other words, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. According to them, they also say the term originated with the assignment of nephews to important positions by Catholic popes and bishops. It's everywhere. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Nepotism appoints unqualified friends and relatives to positions of authority. There's no excuse for it. It should not happen. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says of verse 6, Since position was not assigned on the basis of merit, but on the basis of a ruler's caprice, it means at a whim, the value of wisdom has often been nullified. Often been nullified. Uh, Unqualified people get in charge and they drive us nuts. They drive us nuts. We've all seen it. We've all seen it. Um, I, I think that verses... 5 through 7 are kind of Solomon's offer of empathy for us, for those who are reading uh, this letter. Uh, Empathy uh, towards the evil uh, we suffer in verses 4 and 5. He's saying this. I think he's saying, I understand. I get it. I see it. I've got a heartbeat. I'm alive. I I see the evil committed under the sun. This is the world we live in. It is. It's the world we live in. It's completely upside down. Nothing is functioning as it should in the world. If you're working hard to get ahead in life, you've completed a higher degree, you've served well, you've worked hard, you deserve more. Boy, capriciousness and nepotism, it it nullifies all value and wisdom. It just cheats. 
It's wrong. Uh, to appoint fools to position of honor for which they are not qualified. Bottom line, uh, Solomon says, it's evil. It, it, it's evil. But all too often, it's precisely the way that the world works. It's upside down. It's upside down, and this is precisely Solomon's point in our remaining verses. The world is upside down. In verse 6, he's also seen these things. Rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. All of these describe things that Solomon has seen that he says aren't right. These are culturally not right, uh, but don't let his examples grate you too much, all right? Don't let them grate you because most of us, at least some of us would say, well, you know, let, the, let the rich man sit in the humble place. He looks good over there. Let those spoiled, rotten princes, let them walk. I like, I like the idea of slaves riding on horses. Folks, that's because you and I have been influenced so much uh, by Hollywood and, and television and movies and social justice gospel, which is not a gospel at all. It's a false gospel that is spread by men who are accursed. The social justice gospel is an error for this reason. It is preached by an unregenerated world an unsaved world that thinks that it can enforce social reform without first relying on the gospel of Jesus Christ to provide reconciliation to God. Christians know it is only through spiritual regeneration and being born again through which things are made right. It's the only way the heart will ever be made right. Thereby the rich in God's kingdom, once made right, they can indeed humble themselves. Princes can serve like slaves. Slaves are treated like brothers and sisters on equal footing as described in the book of Philemon. But folks, that's in the kingdom of God. That is behavior by regenerated Christians who accept everyone as brothers and sisters. We, we Christians, we enjoy in the church an eager expression, a willingness of a regenerated heart. It's not the result of social engineering enforced rigidly by an unregenerated world. That they think they're going to make things right. All the unregenerated world is, can do is make things wrong. All they can do... Uh, through grace, we embrace and enter God's kingdom, Christ's church, where there is no longer Greek nor Jew. There is no longer circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian, uh, barbarian or Scythian slave or free man. doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. There's no longer black or white or Asian or Hispanic, rich or poor, because Christ is all and in all. 
Christians don't have to dream of that distant future day. We can employ and adapt a rather familiar phrase. I'm going to address this. Um, but it is a familiar phrase of Martin Luther King Jr. We already judge a person by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. That is the church. The unregenerated world cannot do that. They don't have the capacity to do that. They will always use ethnicity and gender and skin color for virtually every attempt of social engineering in their perverted attempts at reform. They don't rely on God. They don't want God. They want to substitute something in place of God. The, wor the world can only provide new forms of discrimination. And injustice is the best that the world can offer. It's all they can give. Folks, Christ Church must not step headlong into that snare and join the world. We don't want to go there. Division. Division. Now, a lot of this going on, a lot of churches... Uh, really embracing this. It's not causing love and reconciliation. It's not from God. When Solomon had observed slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves, it was something that was an indication things are upside down. They're not what you would expect to see. There are consequences of an incompetent ruler who makes poor judgments. And due to poor and competent and corrupt leadership, things in the world have always functioned backwards. <laughs> Solomon sees it as a great evil under the sun. It sure is. It sure is. What he's saying is he, he's saying, I, I know the world, and, and it's really screwed up, folks. It's really upside down, but he is urging the reader to not give up. Don't give up. Keep your composure. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Don't fold your hand in life. Even if the authority over you rises against you, don't just quit. Don't quit and give up when you see things that aren't right. Folks, don't expect them to be right under the sun. Expect them to be right in Christ's kingdom. Solomon has seen it. Uh, the world has fallen. It is under the curse of God. The way that that is reversed is through the gospel. That is the one thing that we can do right. Preach the gospel and invite people to trust in Jesus Christ. The world is under a curse because of this, injustice is on display every day. Folks, if they weren't so dead in their trespasses and completely unregenerate, the world really should be flocking to Christ's church. Where things are finally turned right again. Where everything is finally made right under the sun. But it's only made right 
because the Holy Spirit has made it right. Through trusting in Christ Jesus, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's where things are made right. One of Solomon's repeated conclusions in Ecclesiastes is this. If you're looking for the world to offer you justice and everlasting peace, boy, you're looking in the wrong place. You'll only be left frustrated and angry when searching there. But under the sun, life is made right in Christ's kingdom. Justice is on display here. Fairness is practiced here. And through the power of God's Spirit, love and forgiveness and respect and empathy and compassion and tolerance are found here. At least to the measure it can be obtained while we remain in the sinful flesh under the sun, awaiting Christ's imminent return. That's when things will really get made right, according to our scripture reading earlier. Things are going to be made right. Um, We need to stop anticipating that the unregenerated world is eventually going to start behaving like Christians. It's a false hope. It's a false hope. Um, And when it doesn't, when they don't, we need to keep our composure. Keep our composure. The remedy for the world is the gospel, to believe that Christ has died for your sins and that he rose from the dead. There is no hope in anything else. But everything changes once you receive that truth. Trusting in anything else, anything else, government reforms, social engineering, it's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. That is not from God. But you can receive the blessings of a new kingdom through the new covenant by recognizing your sin and repenting of it and trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. You can do that today because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is. Christ is going to turn your world upside down. If you've been looking for that, you're in the right place. You're in the right place because his church turns everything right side up again. It's his people. This is exactly what the apostles were accused of in Thessalonica. As Paul was reasoning from the scriptures in Acts chapter 17, a few words here before we start uh, to serve the Lord's Supper. Paul was reasoning from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. Some of them were like, I'll buy that. I hope that includes you today. But the world dragged many of those early Christians, including one named Jason, dragged them into court. He was accused that along with Paul and the many others, he was accused of being men and women who were turning the whole world upside down. (laughs) Oh, and that's right. That is right. 
It means they were setting the world back upright again. Folks, that's what we need to be accused of, that we are setting the world right side up again. And we get a reminder of how Christ has set the world right every time we come together on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day. I received a text earlier this week, so Michael counts. If you haven't met Michael, you need to. He's a great electrician. Yeah, it's just a little, something extra there if you need one. Um, but Michael counts, we'll text now and then. I want to share with you, before we share the Lord's Supper, an exchange that we were having earlier this week. <laughs> Got Michael's permission for this. He said this, he said, people say that they hate Monday and even some overweight cats. I don't know what that means. I think it's a voice texting error. I thought he would be here so he could clarify. People say they hate Monday, but it's a matter of perspective. If you look at Sunday as the first day instead of the last day of the week, then you should be hopeful for the rest of the week. Monday, then, is just another day of the week instead of being the beginning of another week. It makes Sunday service even more important. It becomes comfort encouragement and renewal for the preparation of the week ahead and not the final day of a week of struggle. He wrote, we look forward to Sunday service as much as unbelievers look forward to Friday. He said, being a small business owner and always working no matter what day it is may also be part of not looking forward to Fridays, but then we get more from Sunday service than I ever got from a gathering on Friday. It lets you know that you are not alone. And if, you are, and if you are with God, then the battle has already been won. I just replied, profound. Profound. What an encouragement. When we start the re week right, knowing that the battle has already been won, folks, we can face any given scenario with confidence and composure. Life has truly been set right in Christ.